0: Welcome to the Essay for FA's Asset Allocator Podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors, including ETFs, asset allocation, and the economy. I'm your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today we're going to speak with Mark Elliott of Elliott Asset Management in Boston, a rare gutsy investor whose past contrarian moves have paid off and whose current contrarian moves we will discuss shortly. My guest, Mark Elliott, has made some pretty good investment calls. One of them was to go all in in the last stock market crisis, and in 2009, his clients enjoyed an over 400% return on their investments. Clients doubled their money in 2018, and with some zigging and zagging, losses of over 40% in 2011 and 2017, his audited performance results as can be seen on his website, elliottam.com, are nothing short of eye-popping. The results have not been updated for last year, when our guest was extremely ill, but he's back in the game, and this time with more conviction investments of the sort that could see similar big returns if he proves right once again. Foremost among those investments are his investments in Puerto Rican sales tax revenue bonds, as well as stocks of the most hated sector of the decade, Energy. We're going to speak about that and much more. With no further ado then, Mark, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you for inviting me here, Gil. It's, it's great to be on your show. Thank you.
0: Sure. Pleasure to have you. First, I should mention that you've been fighting a life-threatening illness, and thank God you're back. Have you fully recovered and are able to assume your investment management responsibilities?
1: I would say that uh, I'll never be back to the level that I was before the accidents happened, but uh, I'm almost back completely in the saddle. And I feel comfortable. Uh, Normally, I have several different uh, sticks in the fire. Right now, I feel pretty confident about our calls, as you had mentioned, on the COFINA sales tax revenue bonds, which we are perhaps some of the world's foremost experts in, as we're the lead appellant in the current litigation on that, and on some of our energy picks, which, as you had mentioned, are the most hated of the decade. And oftentimes, when uh, you have a sector that's so hated, there's some substantial value there. And uh, I, I think that you're your uh, listeners um, would be wise to, to look in that sector.
0: Okay, thank God. So you're managing money again. Let's address your bond portfolio, which I understand is currently your largest investment. My first question then is, isn't Puerto Rico an even greater debt today than when the US government had to rescue it in 2016? What's your rationale for holding these bonds?
1: Well, there's there's a number of reasons to invest in Puerto Rico uh, debt, and uh, it could take us literally, we could talk about this for hours. And I've been in court and uh, speaking to <laughs> our lawyers and such on this. I have to be a little careful about how much I discuss because they've warned me not to discuss what we're going to be going to the appeals court in Boston on in detail uh, in April. But there's several different factors. Uh, where to start? Firstly, Puerto Rico is a territory, it is part of the United States, you know, part of the United States as a US territory, but their residents are not subject to US income taxes to the IRS. So one of the misconceptions is that Puerto Rico has more debt than any other Uh, entity or large territory in the United States. And at face value, that's the case. However, if you look and you state that the only tax that they pay is to Puerto Rico, and they're not responsible for the gargantuan debt that the federal government has, and included in Puerto Rico's debts are several entities like their utilities and such, their actual debt burden is relatively low. Secondly, you have to look very carefully at the type of debt. Back when we started to make large purchases of these investments back in the summer of 2015, we specifically picked out two types of debt and really one type of debt. We bought a small number of the general obligation bonds, which most of your listeners will understand are generally considered the highest of the unsecured debt. And there's a number of reasons why those were particularly solid. And later we found out that some of the largest hedge funds on the planet bought tremendous amounts of those. And then secondly, and most importantly, we bought a lot of COFINA debt, the sales tax revenue debt. And those we kind of looked at as a somewhat insular case. That these debts were a securitized debt. They had a sales tax that they enacted, pledged the sales tax, future sales tax, to securitize these bonds. And these bonds, when they were initially issued just over 10 years ago, were rated AA minus and A plus in general for the senior and subordinate tranches by the major ratings agencies, while the GO debts were rated triple B to triple B minus. And other debts, uh, you know, were quickly downgraded to junk. So we saw the sales tax revenue bonds as being relatively secure, even though we thought Puerto Rico had a high chance of going through a bankruptcy-like process.
0: Well, it seemed like you've got good company with Seth Klarman's Baupost Group, Canyon Partners, (laughs) and other big hedge funds as owners. So is it really, uh, at this point, seen as a... Such a controversial move to own them.
1: Well, it was it was certainly a controversial move when we first got into the game. We had no idea uh, who else was our bedfellows in these in these uh, purchases, and it was quite ironic as it came to head that it would appear that there would be some legal action. Um, we noticed that there were several funds, some firms that we couldn't figure out who they were that were based out of the Prudential Center here in Boston that were buying billions of dollars worth of these bonds. And literally, uh, we went to Prudential, we knocked on doors, we asked who, you know, this entity was, we couldn't get uh, any information. And later, it was revealed in court, or there was actually some good um, reporting done, I can't remember who did it. Uh, But they figured out that it was Seth, Seth Klarman, and he's the number one holder. Of, of the Kofina revenue bonds. And he did the exact same research as us and bought at essentially the same time. An important difference between us and Mr. Klarman was, uh, Mr. Klarman originally bought a lot of the senior revenue bonds. We bought a lot of the seniors. We also bought some of the insured. And then we really focused on the subordinates. And uh, it's pretty complex what happened. Uh, but it's all public uh, information as it is in court right now. And we feel very confident that we're going to come out ahead and ultimately beat Seth at his own game. And uh, hopefully I can meet him and shake his hand. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, But they did very well with their seniors. I testified in court that the seniors actually ended up getting a payout of over 100% of par, which is unheard of in municipal bankruptcy. They claimed 93.1%. That was highly misleading. The juniors ended up getting uh, about 55 56%. It ended up being a bit less than that. But for our investors, where we bought for substantially less than that, that was already a decent return. And we're anticipating that the appeals court will end up awarding us a lot more
0: than that. Can you explain what the appeals court case is about?
1: Yes, I can tell you at a pretty high level. In short, these are secured revenue bonds. So this the uh, Commonwealth of Puerto Rico pledged their sales tax, future sales tax, against the issuance of these bonds, and, and thus they were rated so highly. And then, uh, again, grossly simplifying matters, back in the day when they issued these bonds, there wasn't a mechanism for, for Puerto Rico to even declare bankruptcy. There had to be an act of Congress to allow them to de- declare bankruptcy. And that in itself is an issue, the fact that a law was retroactively applied to take to take our, basically our assets. You know, uh, a bond is an asset and a promise to pay as an asset. And essentially, they said in their promise and in their bond disclosures that they wouldn't uh, contest the rights of these bonds, that they would defend them, that they would basically do everything to make them whole. But after Congress passed their law stating that uh, they would allow Puerto Rico to go bankrupt, they declared bankruptcy or a bankruptcy-like procedure for COFINA. It, it's something that actually we've been we've been uh, contacted already by some, some folks interested in telling the story if we prevail. It's really something that's kind of made for a movie, the backroom deals that happened, the things that the court sanctioned that they shouldn't. But at a very high level, it's that the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico borrowed a dollar, took a dollar and gave back 50 cents, even though they had the ability to pay. And that 50 cents isn't going to end up going to Puerto Rico. It's going to be going to the general obligation bondholders and other hedge funds. Uh, We're fighting to claw that back to its rightful owners, which are the mainland subordinate holders that really didn't have a chance in court based the way that things were done.
0: What kind of return do you think you might get for investors on these bonds? Whatever it is, it's probably a far cry from the 2% bond yields in the regular treasury market with no possibility of capital gains if you hold to maturity.
1: Yes, you, you hit you hit the nail on the head there with fixed income. It's, it's a very tough market, uh, which incidentally is pushing a lot of people into uh, equities, which is driving the price up. But in terms of Kofina, there's three different return numbers that I'd like to give you. One is uh, what our investors will get. And uh, our investors are going to get, uh, there's, there's a whole myriad of returns that they'll get because we purchase different bonds at different dates at different prices. So I'm just going to give you a ballpark figure that and these are going to be tax-free returns. We've already achieved a return of you know, a relatively small amount on just a few bonds that we bought in 2013 to, geez, it's probably 800 plus percent return in just over the last year and, and a lot of the bonds that we bought towards the end. What we're expecting for future returns, if we prevail in court, which again, we, we feel pretty confident that, that we, uh, we will. I have already submitted some damages to the court, calculation of damages. Uh, there's there's going to be some more on top of that, but it's going to be anywhere from another, about 200% on top of that to uh, maybe another over 1,000% on some securities. So we're going to be looking at some pretty ridiculous numbers if, if we do well. But secondly, those who bought these bonds for the long-term, a lot of the small mom and pop investors in the US that, that really didn't have their day in court, we believe, they could be looking at, some of those same returns you know, on today's dollars, of course, it's simply going to pay them for what they should have been paid all along. And then finally, as a final number, I think that your listeners would would do well to look carefully at the COFINA structure. It's very atypical in that, yes, it was impaired, uh, but the court actually, and I was in the court at the time, the judge uh, listened to and ended up granting a request to basically stamp a federal bankruptcy court order stating that these new bonds that were issued, the restructured COFINA bonds, are valid and enforceable in federal court, that they can't be challenged again. And they were structured in a way to once again uh, fulfill the criterion of having an A to double A minus rating. And they're currently unrated. And the coupon bonds right now are yielding at today's values just under four percent tax free, triple tax free, and the zeros are yielding around 4.8 percent. And it is my belief that after everything pans out uh, and settles down with Puerto Rico, particularly the GOs get settled, that the rating agencies will rate these bonds and they will be investment grade, at which time the value will go up a lot. Uh, and then, secondly, you know, where are you going to find? a strong fixed income, that's triple tax-free, paying you better than 3%. That's non-callable for another nine years.
0: Let's talk about energy now. It's the only sector of the S&P 500 still in the red after five years. It's tempting to look at this as a mean reversion case, and maybe that is what you mean, but there's a lot to worry about. A few years ago, the thought that the U.S. would be energy independent was absurd. Today, it's a fact. A fact also that means there's a glut of production in the world today. So what is your energy thesis?
1: We tend to take a lot of contrarian uh, plays, although... Our thesis, our investment thesis, is never to simply be contrarian. We're deep value investors. We try to find specific situations where the market is mispricing the risk and return. And uh, it's it's better to start, you know, several years back when everybody was so intensely excited about energy. We didn't have any energy in our portfolios because we thought there was too much uh, hysteria, too much uh, too much positive uh, that that we were priced out of the market. And an easy one to look at and where we're substantially invested are in the master limited partnerships. Now, when you talk about a hated sector, yeah, energy is right at the top. As you said, five years, it's, it's done horribly. If you take the master limited partnership sector of that, then you're talking about the most hated of the hated. And there's so many reasons to hate master limited partnerships, but anything at the right price is a good investment. And really, with these master limited partnerships, a number of them have straightened out the way that they do business, but they're being penalized for past evils, uh, justifiably so, but we think over penalized for the prices. We think that another reason why they're penalized is that it's hard to have these things in an ETF and everybody is moving towards ETFs uh, and from value into momentum and large cap. And therefore, you know, as people move from, Individual stocks and into ETFs, they've been, they've been uh, shunned even further. So you're able to buy some of these master-limited partnerships at values that, particularly at today's interest rates that we see them trading for humongous discounts to their net present value or the future cash flows. Additionally, the things that made these master-limited partnerships so attractive back as early as 2015, are relatively anticipated cash flows that are not so dependent on the, the underlying value of the commodities. And then secondly, we have emphasized a bit more uh, Master Limited Partnerships that emphasize the natural gas infrastructure, which has been the hardest hit of the energy plays. But we believe that the natural gas infrastructure is even harder to replace than the oil in that there's not going to be, uh, because we're the lowest cost producer of natural gas, it's not any time in the horizon that we're going to go from a net uh, exporter to importer. So these pipelines, uh, no matter what the price action may be, uh, there's going to be gas needed, and they're going to need to be transported from point A to B, and they're going to be in the pipelines that we owe.
0: What will be the catalyst to unlock the value? Even the U.S.-Iran crisis that's currently playing out barely budged the Energy Select Spider Index.
1: That is a good point, Gil. And it's something that we really, you know, I've always been considered a bit of an odd duck. And every time that uh, I talk to a large investor or group, they always look back at what I've done over the last 15, 10 years, last several years, and they go, wow, that was great. And whenever I tell them what my latest idea is, they always shake their head no and say that I'm wrong this time. (laughs) Maybe I am wrong. But I love the fact that i don't look for a catalyst in terms of a trade so and, and this is something that actually is even more beautiful about the master limited partnerships you're talking uh, you know if you just hold these if they survive and don't grow and they are growing they're growing in terms of their revenue and their cash flow you're going to get about a 10 a percent cash rate of return and a lot of that is tax-advantaged so I like it when the market misprices an asset, and I actually get upset when the price <laughs> goes up if I don't have something else to go into. And right now, with today's valuations, I don't see a lot of opportunity outside of energy, some select communication, some—you uh, know—we have some financials, but uh, we're we're really loaded up in a few sectors. And so, I hope that this mispricing uh, survives for the long term, and I'll keep taking that 10% yield. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> so do you have an opinion, for example, as to where West Texas intermediate crude is going, or is it a matter of indifference to you because you're just looking at the underlying value of these investments?
1: It's somewhat indifferent. Uh, from a macro perspective, the U.S. is going to continue to need to use oil. Some, some recent data, you know, the last, the Great Recession there was only one year where oil use went down, and it was by, I believe, less than one percent. And even if we have a major crisis where oil prices go way down, which we don't see happening again, there's going to be consolidation with the industry and the largest producers, uh, the Chevron's, the Exxon Mobil's, are saying, for instance, uh, you know, oil. You often speak about the Permian that they're going to be able to produce in the Permian for $15 a barrel. You know, Maybe they won't get that low, but we have to trust these are the biggest and most sophisticated players in the industry. If this consolidation happens, pretty much no matter how low oil prices go, we're going to be producing in the United States. There may be bankruptcies of different producers, but these pipelines are still going to be used. And yes, they may uh, suffer some bad times, some hard times if there are some bankruptcies, but they're not going to go out of business. And we think that the upside is so substantially greater than the downside. You know, Anytime that there's such negative, uh, negative uh, sentiment around a particular sector, there's going to be headlines that are horrible. You always have to look at the underlying valuations. And if you're buying the assets for a fraction of what the replacement value is, and for such a small amount compared to their discounted cash flow analysis, particularly compared to other sectors, I, I just really think that you've already got the worst case scenario
0: baked in. Any names you'd like to mention? Which sure, we like?
1: sure. I'm glad that I can mention it because we've got our full, fully allocated in some of the names that we like. Our number one holding overall is CNX Midstream, CNXM. It's had a very good run recently, uh, but we really like them because unlike most of the energy wildcatters, uh, CNX, CNX Resources is, is one of the best run outfits uh, in the industry, and arguably you know maybe uh, there 's some competition there with um, Cabot they're they 're one of the best uh, in shareholder friendly managements that there are in the industry, very very you know different than what the industry has been punished as, and so we like c n x Um, but for a more solid holding over the long-term. CNX Midstream, they have their gathering pipelines. Uh, Again, it's natural gas focused, which even though prices are very low, we see production in the United States maintaining and even increasing in time, pretty much no matter what the circumstances are. So you're able to get this name at, again, a dividend yield of over 10%, and management has promised and delivered a 15% dividend, or I guess you would say distribution, increase every year since their inception and they're projecting it for the next several years so and, and they're going to be able to do that very likely they have very low debt they have um, those gathering pipelines and then secondly cnx is one of the leaders in deep utica production these same pipelines are going to be able to be reused for utica and the cost of the utica that they've been pulling from the ground has been under a dollar per for a million uh, British thermal units uh, equivalent. They're just really well disciplined management, not much leverage, phenomenal cash flow, great assets that is, that's likely to be there for the long term. Uh, we love them. Another one that's a little more, we're a little more uh, sanguine about, but it's turned into our, I believe it's our number two, or I think it's our number three holding now. Number two is uh, CenturyLink. Uh, number three now is energy transfer, and that's one that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. It's really uh, been a dog of the group, and somewhat justifiably so. And uh, this one uh, from a thirty thousand uh, foot view, the assets, it's it's trading for uh, you know price to cash flow of uh, you know in the mid high single digits. It's able to cover its uh, ca- uh, its distribution almost two times over. Management has done some things that uh, have not been the most shareholder friendly, but we look and we say that's way more than priced into the shares. And that you know the the master limited partnerships were set up. A lot of these uh, companies were set up some years back to be friendly to management. They took advantage of it. Now with uh, energy transfer, they've they've bought out their their uh, parent company. They don't have the incentive distribution rights anymore. Kelsey Warren is by far the largest shareholder, the CEO. Um, we think that it's way undervalued. Yes, they have some issues, but uh, we think that's it's rare to find something that's such a deep value throwing off such cash flow that could go up by several times in the near future and uh, still be a good buy.
0: Our listeners may be interested to know that you've got actual investment experience in China since Marco Polo folks have been trying to figure out how to make money there. Your thoughts?
1: Well, China's an interesting case. Yes, I actually uh, resided in China for a while and was uh, chief uh, Western financial advisor for... the China free uh, pilot-free trade zone, their trade, International Trade and Operations Center. It was quite an experience. Unfortunately, that's when some of my uh, disasters happened, and I didn't get to take that as far as I wish. But I did just get back from China, where the old uh, head of the International Trade and Operations Center invited us to the grand opening of the Belt and Road uh, National Pavilion, where we were the only Americans there because you know we're the only ones that are fighting with them on trade. It's, it was kind of funny. We see two different opportunities in China. One is if if we, you know, in terms of investing in, in people's stock accounts, we think that there's opportunity in some of their large cap tech names. There's a lot of problems with China, but and we wouldn't take a large exposure to them, but we, we do think that there's opportunities in, in companies such as Tencent, where if China continues to do well, they'll be able to leverage that. The multiples are lower than, say, the Facebooks uh, in, and other companies in the United States, and they have much more growth potential. But where we really see opportunity and where I tried to meld myself into the inner workings when China was trying to open up, by advising the International Trade and Operations Center, I was able to see a number of the draft laws and uh, things that were being discussed in terms of liberalization and offer to help advise them how to cater that towards the Western needs and ask them basically to help support us do investments in those fields. That opportunity right now is somewhat gone. But I do think uh, for, in, for folks that are willing to think outside of the box and make some efforts, there's a lot of opportunity in China in private equity in small and middle-sized businesses. They're not able to get funding. They're not able to get good advice. There's, Western management helps a lot, and I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. I'd love to be involved in that, but uh, would need to work with some other folks.
0: Puerto Rican bonds, left for dead energy names, Chinese private equity, gutsy moves from a fighter, both personally and professionally. Mark, it was great to hear your views.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Gil. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast of value, consider passing it on to one other advisor. Also feel free to contact me at gil at seekingalpha.com with any feedback you might have. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.